This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.christchurchsouthphilly.org. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. We are picking back up in our series this morning after having taken a break last week to send out our church plant to San Jose, California. So excited for what God is doing out there. We took a break for Send Off Sunday uh, but from our series in First Peter, but today we are getting back into this ancient letter written by one of Jesus' closest followers. But this was not just a letter written by Peter. The Bible says that Peter was inspired in such a way by the Holy Spirit that this is actually God speaking to us. And I recognize not everyone here might believe that, but my prayer is that by the end of our time today that you will have heard God speaking to you. As you make your way to 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 13 through 21 today, and as you kind of get situated in that place, uh, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on this, but, but I wonder if there, are, if there are other people here who, like me, you suffered from a little bit of separation anxiety from your parents when you were a kid. You don't have to identify yourself, but, uh, but that was definitely something that, that I went through for a stage that, well, it went on a lot, lot longer than I would care to, care to admit. I have this distinct memory where it was raining outside. Uh, my parents were trying to sneak out to go on a date. Not date so they had a, a, uh, a babysitter there. Uh, which is like, how do you sneak out? Like, I know this person wasn't just here to hang out with us, um, so I'm not, I'm not a dummy. Uh, but they, they kind of like made their way out. There was an alley in the back, and so they had to like take the car, drive the alley around, and then kind of come out this way to like the main street. And so I recognized the way I hadn't seen my parents for a little bit, and I see them at the corner of the street, like getting ready to pull into the main road, and they're stopped at a light waiting. And so I'm run out, full bore, in the rain, screaming, no, don't let you know, and, and they peel out as fast as they can. Um, they believed in tough love, and I'm still standing here today, so I guess it's all right. But, but I had the severe fear of, of being, being separated from my parents, and, and honestly, I blame Disney for it. I blame Disney. The first movie I ever saw made by Disney was Bambi. All right, now, I was, how many people here have seen Bambi? Okay, uh, if you haven't seen it, I'm going to give away some spoilers here, but you've had 70 years to see it, so I don't feel bad. Um, in Bambi, like right at the beginning, his mother dies. It's like birds are chirping, they're singing this beautiful song, fa-la-la, and then here comes a hunter, bam, Bambi's mom is dead. And, uh, you know, people say it's like, this is a kid's movie? This is a horror movie. Like, what on earth? What Disney executive thought this was a good idea? Let's just traumatize children as much as we possibly can uh, by making their worst fears come true. And so I said this, like, man, is my mom going to die? Like, it was like a real, a real fear that I had for a while. Um, but after some time, it starts to start to abate a little bit. But but I but I'd sworn off Disney movies. I'm like I'm not watching any more of that. You know, you're not you're not gonna you're not gonna fool me again, right? And so, but my parents um, they heard about this great new Disney movie coming out, and so they said, hey guys, let's let's go let's go watch this movie together. Um, I did not want to go because again I had this thing against Disney, but. We also, we never went to the movies as, as a family. Uh, my dad was a Christian school teacher, and then he was a pastor, so translation, we were dirt poor. Uh, and there was like five of us, so we never, we went to movies maybe once every other year, if we're lucky, and someone gave my parents money to do so. Um, so someone had given my parents money to take us out to a movie, and they wanted to create this kind of family memory. So, so I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm getting better, I'm feeling good, I think this will be okay. So we go to watch this movie at, at a theater, we sit down, the lights go down, 
I'm starting to settle in, thinking everything's going to be okay, and it's the Lion King, right? And if you've ever seen The Lion King, um, again, that movie, that, that, t- that takes parent death to even a, a higher level. Because not only is that, not only is that, that in that movie does, does Simba's dad die, but he actually watches him die, and then he gets blamed for the death and has to like carry that shame for years and run out in hiding. Uh, again, I'm just wondering, like, what on earth are Disney executives thinking? And so, so I have separation anxieties, and, and I, I, blame, I blame Disney for it. Um, but in that movie, The Lion King, and again, there's a spoiler here, but if you haven't seen it at this point, like, okay, I don't feel bad. Um, that movie, Lion King, it really turns, where, where Simba's kind of, he, he's, he's hiding in shame. Uh, he, he's scared of what's, what's been happening. And, and he meets the spirit of his father, Mufasa, voiced by James Earl Jones. And, uh, and Mufasa says to him, Simba, I'm not even going to try to do his voice, um, Simba, you have forgotten who you are. And so forgotten me. You are my son and the rightful heir to the throne. Remember who you are. Right? right? This is great, this great moment. Simba's reminded of who his father is. And through that, he's reminded of who he is. And that reminder of his identity is what then empowers him to go live out his life calling. And so actually, thank you, Disney. That'll preach. That'll preach. And that's going to preach this morning through the text that we're about to read. This morning as we come to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, we're going to see God's Word boldly telling us something about who God is and who we are and what that is meant to mean for our life's calling. And so I'm going to tell this morning's sermon, an identity and a calling. An identity and a calling. Let's read together in God's Holy Word, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through 21, and then I will pray. Therefore, Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Would you bow your head with me now as I say a word of prayer that God would bless our time together in his word. Lord God, thank you for your holy word. Thank you for inspiring Peter to write this letter to these churches so many years ago. But thank you that it was you who led him to do so in such a way that it was actually your words coming through him. And you have preserved this letter for us for today because you want to speak to us. Oh God, let us hear your voice. Would we understand what these words are saying to us 
so that our joy in Christ might be increased and we might become more and more the people that you have created us to be for your glory. God, we also want to remember that today is not only Father's Day, but it is June 19th, more commonly known as Juneteenth, the day where the end of slavery is celebrated in our country. God, in Exodus chapter 21, verse 16, you say that whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Lord, you abhor the African slave trade that took place for hundreds of years in our country as it dehumanized people who were made in your image. And therefore, Lord God, as your followers, we celebrate and rejoice its ending. And we also continue to pray for all the vestiges of racism that still exists. Lord, would you continue to lead us in repentance for your glory and for our good. We praise things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. All right, exiles, an identity and a calling. We're going to look at four points this morning. We're going to look at what this text tells us about who God is. And then second, we're going to see who we are to God. Both those things, knowing who God is and who we are to God, are kind of going to form our identity. And then three, we're going to look at what kind of life God wants us to lead. And then two, how we are to pursue it. That, that's going to kind of be our, our, our calling. So two points in identity, two points about a calling. But the big idea, the bottom line is really this. The holy God wants his blood-ransomed chosen children to pursue holy lives. There's one thing that we remember from these verses, and I hope this, this, this speaks to you by the end of our time today. The, the one thing that I think God wants to impress upon our hearts from these verses is that the Holy God wants His blood-ransomed chosen children to pursue holy lives. We have an identity, and we have a calling. Let's begin by looking at who, who God is. Verse 16 tells us exactly who God is. It says, you should be holy. Why? For I am holy. Our God is the holy God. Now when we hear the word holiness, I think sometimes we can go straight to synonyms that we think of like purity or righteousness. We think in terms of morality. And those words are certainly all part of holiness, but they do not fully capture the essence of this word. In the book of Leviticus, which is what Peter is quoting from here in Verse 16, it's, it's a book of the Bible that deals really extensively with this idea of holiness. And what you see in the book of Leviticus is that often there are actually things that are called holy. You can have holy bowls. You can have holy places. Inanimate, not alive objects can be holy. How is that possible? Because holiness is not just talking about some kind of purity. It's not just talking about moral choices. The word holy literally means set apart. And so holy bowl was a bowl that had been set apart from its normal use and devoted to a sacred task. And so you had normal bowls that you, you know, I don't know, eat the ancient equivalent of cereal out of. Uh, I prefer honey nut Cheerios. And, and maybe that bowl had a few dents and dings in it. But then in the temple, there would be holy bowls. Bowls that were set apart to carry the waters of purification. And so holiness is really this idea of being set apart, of being uncommon, of having a sacred purpose. God is holy. He is anything but common. He is set apart. He has a sacred purpose to shine forth His glory 
the greatness of who He is. In Isaiah chapter 6 and Revelation 4, we see that God is called holy, holy, holy. In the Hebrew language, when something was meant to be emphasized, they didn't have modifier words like very or, or utmost or, or greatest. There was no Microsoft Word back then where you could put something in bold and italicize it. No, what that language does is it repeats things for emphasis. And holiness is the only attribute of God, the only characteristic that the Bible talks about of God that gets repeated three times. The Bible never says that God is love, love, love. The Bible never says that God is justice, justice, justice. The Bible never says that God is mercy, mercy, mercy. God is all those things, but it is His holiness, His being set apart, that most defines how He is all of those things. And so his love is a holy love. His justice is a holy justice. His mercy is a holy mercy. God is set apart. He is set apart. He is set apart. He is transcendently awesome. There is nothing like him. He doesn't fit into any preconceived boxes that we could possibly comprise in our human unholy minds. God, God, God is God is holy, holy, holy. Which is why verse 17 tells us that as we live here on earth, in this life of exile, as we live here on earth, traveling to our true home, we are to live in the fear of God. We are to conduct ourselves with fear because this holy God isn't also the impartial judge. God does not play favorites. He cannot be bribed. No, verse 17 says it clearly. He judges them partially according to each one's deeds. Now, in this context, Peter's talking about how God judges Christians. So verse 17 starts by saying, if you look at it, if you call on him as father, that's speaking to Christians. You're like, wait a second, if I'm a Christian, I thought the whole point of being a Christian was I'm not going to be judged by God. Well, it depends what you mean by judgment. For the Christian, we will not face the judgment of hell because Christ already endured that for us on the cross. Verse 19 is going to pick up on that, saying, knowing that you were ransomed. Jesus already paid for our sins. We're going to talk about that more in a moment. But while we will not face the judgment of hell, we can still, as Christians, do things that please God and don't please God. And God's not some kind of sweet old grandfather in the sky to whom we can do no wrong, and he just loves to hand out lollipops. No, no, no. God, God doesn't give out participation trophies so that everyone feels happy. He, he, he judges. First Peter is going to go on to say in, in chapter 4, verse 17, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. The holy God will judge even those who are part of his family in his household. The apostle Paul says it this way in his letter to the Corinthians, his second letter. He says, we make it our aim to please him. Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So he's saying, live to please God, because we're going to have to appear before the judgment seat of God, and at that seat we will receive what is due for what we do in this life. Not the punishment that we are due, but either the receipt of reward or the loss of reward. 
Paul said it in his first letter to the Corinthians this way, each one's work will become manifest for the day, meaning judgment day, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone's built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Right, so the foundation here is talking about the foundation of the gospel, the good news of our salvation in Jesus. When we get to heaven, we will get into heaven because the blood of Jesus pays our way. But then when we come in and bring our life before God, before the holy God, anything that we do that has not been pleasing to God will be burned up. It will be worthless. There will be no rewards for those things given. The Christian will still be saved and in heaven, but they'll have nothing to show for their lives but a handful of smoke. That's what this text is saying. See, God is the holy God who judges impartially, and because of that, we should live with a healthy fear of this God who will judge our lives. We should live with a healthy fear. This is not fear as an intimidation tactic. God wants us to fear him, not because he is some kind of cosmic bully, but actually God wants us to fear him because of who we are to him and how much he loves us. Let's look at that for a moment, who we are to God. This, these verses say several things about who we are to God. First, verse 13 tells us that we are those who God has brought grace to at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This reference to grace is a recap of what Peter's been talking about in verses 1 through 12. That's why verse 13 starts with the word, therefore. When you receive therefore in your Bible, it's, it's linking back to what came before. And so what came before? What, what's the therefore that, that, that's being talked about? Well, it's verse 1. It's the reality that we're exiles. This broken, sin-cursed world is not our true home. Glory, hallelujah. We are exiles. Why are we exiles? Because we are elect. Elect means chosen. What are we chosen for? Verse 3, God has caused us to be born again. We are born into this world as descendants of our first parents, Adam and Eve. They, they sinned against God and brought the curse of sin into this world. And so we're born into this world as, as natural born enemies of God. But praise God that his chosen people can become born again. We are no longer part of Adam's family and a part of their coming destruction, but we can be born again and become part of God's family. And when we become part of God's family, verse 4, we are now heirs to the inheritance that can never be lost, which is the new heavens and the new earth. And verses then 10 through 12 call this spiritual rebirth that comes by the grace of God to his chosen people. He calls this spiritual rebirth the blessing of Salvation, and all of this is by grace. It's by grace. This is not something that we deserve. This is not something that we've earned. This is not something we figured out and that we had better faith than someone else for. No, this all comes from God. It all originates in God. It's all caused by God. It's nothing that God asks us to earn. It's nothing that God asks us to pay back. It is all His grace. That's all that's behind this massive word, therefore. How do we live, therefore, in light of this massive grace? We are God's chosen children by grace. This grace has been brought to us 
the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we see this theme of being God's chosen children by grace picked up in our text when in verse 14 it says what? Obey God as what? As obedient children. You've been born again. Children of God. Verse 17. If you call on Him as Father, that's who God is to you now. We are not born to this world as children of God with God as our Father. We're born to this world as enemies of God with Satan as our Father. But we can be born again. We can be born again and become children of God and have the true living God as our beloved Father. This is the identity that God is giving anyone who places their faith in Christ. Our identity is that we are God's chosen children by grace. And here's what that means. Sometimes when we talk about being, being God's child and Him being our Father, that doesn't necessarily land home because we can have so many bad examples of fatherhood in our in our culture, in our experience. But God does not want our earthly experience of fatherhood to inform how we view our Heavenly Father. Rather, He wants our understanding of our Heavenly Father to redeem and heal whatever earthly experiences of fatherhood we might or might not have had. Here's, here's how God defines His fatherhood. Here's, how, here's, how, here's what it means to be God's, God's child. Verse 19 tells us how much, God, how much God loves us. Verse 19 tells us about God's fatherly affections for us. Verse 19 says, knowing that you were, but with the precious blood of Christ, you, like that of a lamb without spot or blush, what, what's happened? Verse 18, you were ransomed from the feudal ways. God's the Father who loves us so much that He ransomed us. He ransomed us. The, the picture here is that we are Captives to our sins. Living in the bondage and tyranny. Verse 14 of what? Our passions, our own desires. Being true to yourself, being true to your heart is what gets celebrated in our culture, right? We need to be free to be me. What a trick of Satan. Because that is not freedom biblically. That's actually slavery biblically. We can have desires and think that expressing them will satisfy us, but the reality is they never do. And so what happens? We keep searching and pursuing and chasing. Instead of finding that living life our way actually leads to freedom, we find that living life our way means that, that I'm becoming discouraged and disillusioned. We've never been more free to be me, and yet also, if you look at the, the, the signs in our society, mental health has never been worse. Suicide rates have never been worse. Why? Because the dream of being free to be you is not delivering what it promises. It's not delivering the freedom that it said it would, but instead is shackling people in chains. Living free to be you, living according to your own passions, is not freedom, it is slavery. But God has not left us in that captivity. No, He's the God who loves us, and so He came to set us free. He came to give us real freedom. He came to ransom, to pay back our lives. He came to free us. He paid our ransom. Not with some extra money he had lying around. Not with some things that he could easily spare. No, our ransom was paid with the most costly thing in all of existence. Verse 19, you've been paid for with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. This is how much your Heavenly Father loves you. He spared no expense to come rescue you. 
The Father sent the Son, and the Son came in full agreement with the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus allowed the hands of treacherous men to seize him. He allowed his holy head to be beaten. He allowed his divine flesh to be ripped to shreds with a whip. He allowed his hands that made the universe to be driven through with iron spikes and nailed to a cross. And on that cursed tree, Jesus took the punishment that we all deserve to face for eternity. He endured our eternal damnation in His eternal being. Jesus went to hell and back to pay our ransom. Friends, that's how loved you are by the Heavenly Father. That's how loved you are by God. You are not only God's chosen child, but you're His blood ransom chosen child. then you, you might be thinking at this point, how, how's this description of, of this lovingly Father who would, who would give His precious blood for us reconcile with this holy God that we're meant to live in the fear of? Well, I love my kids. But when I see them running towards the street and not watching out for cars, what do I do? I shout out to them a warning and I want them to fear my voice. I, I want my voice to matter to them more than anything else. I want them to have a healthy fear of going against what I say. Why? Not because I'm a bully, but because I am their loving father. And I want to protect them. And I want to care for them. And I know that the desire they have in their heart to chase that ball out into the street is not more important than the desire that I have for them, for them to stay in the safety of the sidewalk. And so I want my kids to respond to my voice. In that sense, I want them to fear me. Not because I'm going to hurt them or harm them, but because I love them. And they know that I should not go against this dad who loves me so much. And that's just a small comparison, friends, to God who loves us so much more than I could possibly love my children. That's such a small comparison because in my limited knowledge, I don't always know what is best for my kids. But in God's infant knowledge, he does always know what is best for us. God wants his voice to be the voice that is heard over every other he wants us to know that we are his children. We are the chosen children of the holy, holy, holy God that he has ransomed with his very own blood. Friends, this is our identity and this text is telling us today to remember who you are. Remember who you are. And as you remember who you are, as you remember your identity, well, this identity gives us a life calling. It gives us a life calling. Let's look at these two things on on, on, on our life calling, what we are to pursue. So who God is, who we are to God, ver- point three, what God says we are to pursue. He makes it abundantly clear in verses 15 and 16. This is how God wants to live. You want what God's will is for your life? You don't have to pray about it anymore. This is God's will for your life. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Holy God wants His blood ransomed chosen children to live holy lives. He wants us to be holy. He wants us to be set apart. He wants us to not live in the common way of whatever culture we find ourselves in. Just going with the flow. No, He wants us to pursue the sacredness of living in obedience to Him. 
Psalm 119, verses 2-4 through four says, Blessed are those who keep His statutes and seek Him with all their heart. They do no wrong, but follow His ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. God has given us His statutes, His ways. He, he's laid down His precepts in Scripture. We, we don't have to guess what God wants from us. We know it through His Word. And He calls us to be holy people who obey His Word in all aspects of our lives. Verse 13, don't, don't miss the qualifier there. It says be holy, what? In all your conduct. Not, not just for an hour on a Sunday. This is meant to be the defining call on our lives every moment that we wake. God wants us to live with the sense that I've been called to be holy. God's not interested in just being someone that you believe in. 80% of Americans say they believe in God. God's not looking for a fan club who just know who He is. He's looking for followers who are willing to give them their whole hearts. God speaks in Scripture to every aspect of our lives. From how we handle our relationships to what we do in conflict. From things as intimate as our sexual lives to as public as how we handle ourselves in our workplaces or schools. In all things, God wants us to be His holy people living each day, making each choice in light of what He says. This is, this is contrary to, again, verse 14, which says, do not be conformed to your passions. He's saying, don't be led by your desires. Don't be led by your desires, but instead allow your identity to inform how you should or should not follow your desires. We get that the other way around in our culture. We allow our desires to form our identity. In God's Word, God wants us to allow our identity in Christ to inform how we view our desires. You know, and, and, and the, the, the charge can come at that point. I hear, I hear it so often, right? Uh, man, it's just so oppressive. Like, you know, Christians always no, no, no. You know, and that's, there's so much repression there. And that, that's why, you know, there's going to be all kinds of issues. Right? We have to give in to our desires. We have to listen to our hearts. That, that's, that's the way to be healthy. But, but, but you know, maybe may think about it this way, if that's, if that's where you can be tempted to go. Um, how do we determine which desires in our hearts are the right ones to listen to? Right? Am I the only one here who sometimes has conflicting desires in my heart? Like, on the one hand, I desire to be a good father. I love my children. I want to be present. I want to help them and do whatever I can to reach their full potential. But on the other hand, I desire peace and quiet. And those two things can be a counter with each other sometimes. And so when my kids are fighting, theoretically, if that happens occasionally, right, I have competing desires. Desire to be a parent and care for them. And I desire for peace and quiet. So I just want to lock them in a room and survive with the fittest, you know. I got three kids. They don't all need to make it to adulthood. I just need one to carry on the family name, you know. Um, I've got competing desires, how do I choose which desire is best? Kids fight club or parental involvement? Obviously kids fight. No, I'm kidding. Um, right? We can have competing desires in our hearts. Do we really want to put all the pressure on ourselves to try to figure out all the time which the best desire is to follow? Follow your heart. Okay, which part would be my response? Right? God loves us so much that He doesn't want us to choose wrong desires that are going to lead us down the bad path. He's given us His Word because He wants us to, to lead us in the way that's truly best for us. 
Don't miss out that Psalm 119.2 said, blessed are those who keep His statutes. That word blessed is so rich. It's speaking about being totally satisfied. Completely happy. See, according to God, the way to get more happiness into the world is to have a little more holiness in the world. Holiness is not contrary to happiness. Holiness is actually the means to get more happiness. God calls us to be set apart in living holy lives, not because he's some kind of killjoy, but because he knows that holiness will lead to actually us experiencing even more joy. In her excellent book, Holier Than Thou, which I would commend to you, Jackie Hill Perry, she, she, she writes this. She said, God is holy, and therefore he cannot sin. If God can't sin, then he can't sin against you. If he can't sin against you, shouldn't that make him the most trustworthy being that there is? Right? Do you see what she's saying? If God is who the Bible says he is, then we should trust that what the, the Bible says about how we should live is not going to lead us wrong. Like God's way is truly best. Why? Because God is the best. And so every, every temptation that we face, friends, is really in that moment, it's a battle of trust. Do we really trust that our limited experience, our often conflicting desires, our culture's values that can change like the wind, do we really trust that living that way will lead to happiness? Or will we trust that the God who made us, the God who has proven his radical and costly love for us through the cross of Christ. Do, do we believe that this holy God is the one that we can trust? See, I think this is why Peter actually says that how we are to pursue holy lives. Did you notice how he start, starts by saying that we're, how we're supposed to pursue this? He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Living a holy life does not start with what we do, but actually starts with what we think. Holiness is a mindset the thing gets worked out in our life choices. It's the mindset that God is the best, and therefore living His way is what's going to be best. Or to say it another way, holiness is worth pursuing because the holy God is worth trusting. God, God calls us to be holy people who live according to His words. And this, this call to holiness, and we're going to see this very clearly throughout the rest of 1 Peter. This is not just an individual call for us. Okay, I'm going to live according to, to God's way, but, but this is just for me. Who am I to impose anything on anyone else? Well, you can't impose anything on anyone else, but you should try to influence them. You should try to influence them. We want to see the world to be more happy, then we should want to see the world to be more holy, and we should think about how can we actually influence this world with our holiness. Not our holiness, but leading in the holy ways of God. Isn't this... The Great Commission? Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20, Jesus' parting words, this is what he says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Often this verse gets used by how we're supposed to go share about the good news of Jesus and what he's done for us, and, and we should do that, Absolutely. But Jesus did not commission us to only talk about what he's done for us. He also told us to teach others about following the way of life that he taught. I had someone tell me once that, hey, you know, we really we need to be careful to, to avoid culturally hot-button topics. Don't, don't address what the Bible says about them. Don't, don't bring that up because you're just going to push people away. 
Friends, Jesus didn't commission us to tell people nice, easy things that they already want to hear. He told us to teach about how his radical, costly, completely different, set-apart, holy way of life is meant to be lived. Again, being a Christian is about, yes, believing in what Christ has done for you. Absolutely. And we need to preach about that. But we don't end with that. There's a therefore. Right? We preach the good news of Christ and teach everyone to obey everything that he said. Right? We should be seeking to not just live holy lives ourselves, but calling people to live holy lives. That's why we can't compromise. That's why we can't be quiet. That's why, you know, I, I love how Martin Luther said, it's where culture presses most hotly that the loyalty of the soldier is most proven. It's actually on those things where, where what the culture says is contrary to what God says. It's into those things that we need to lean. Not just for ourselves. Yes, yes, for ourselves, absolutely, because we're just going to be influenced by the culture. We don't want to do that. We're shaped by God's word. But not just for ourselves, but because if we truly believe that God's way is best, why are we denying that to other people? Why are we perpetuating their unhappiness by rubber stamping their unholiness? Listen, it, it can be hard. It can be hard to talk about things that are, that are not in conformity with God's word. Absolutely. You think it's hard. Imagine what it's like to stand in front of a room of people and say things on the internet, and who knows where that goes. But I don't think Jesus left us here on earth without a purpose. And I don't think he was joking around when he was giving us the Great Commission. God wants us to live holy lives and to seek to influence others to follow the ways of Christ. We should speak with gentleness and carefulness, empathy and sensitivity. But that should never stop truthfulness. Anything less than saying honestly what God says is being faithless to what God has called us to do. And so God calls us to trust Him that His way is best and pursue holiness in our lives and seek to influence others to follow the ways of Christ. Christian, that's what you've been called to do. You might be a salesperson. You might be a garbage person. You might be a waiter or waitress or a CEO. I don't know how God's calling you to work out these things in the particulars of your lives, but here's what God's called everyone to do. You are to live as a holy father, as a holy mother, as a holy husband, as a holy wife, as a holy child, as a holy son, as a holy daughter, as a holy friend, as a holy worker, as a holy PPA writer. They can be even holy somehow. I don't know, but they can do that to the glory of God, right? In all these areas, in every area that we find ourselves, whatever role we have in life, God's will for us in those things, his calling on our life because of our identity in Christ as his chosen blood ransomed children, because of our identity in Christ, our calls to be holy people. All right, as we come to a close, how can we actually do that? How can we actually do that? How, how does this actually get worked out in the practicals of our life? I think this passage gives us two commands to lead us to actually, how do we pursue being holy people. First, again, I've mentioned this a couple times, but verse 14 is so important because it gives a command. It says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. The picture here is that there are sinful influences in us and also the culture around us, right? You've got your passions of your former ignorance. Verse 18 is going to go on and say, knowing that you're ransomed for the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. So, Passions of, uh, of former ignorance is, is your own personal desires. The ways of your forefathers is really the culture, right? It's the culture that's going on there. 
And so, so the picture here is that there are sinful influences in us and around us. They're trying to conform us. They're trying to shape us. And so how we are to pursue being set apart people is by actively resisting. To not be conformed. By actively resisting anything that's contrary to God's word. So, so how do we put up a resistance? Well, I think in scripture we see three categories given. I'll give this to you really quickly. I made them rhyme, so that way I hope you remember. Reflection, starvation, confession. Reflection, starvation, confession. Reflection. Jesus taught us to pray how? Lead us not into temptation. Guess what? That means that we need to be aware of ways that we are tempted to be led into temptation. In order to know how you don't want to be led, you need to know how you are tempted to be led. So I don't pray for God, don't lead me into the temptation of overeating and gluttony of Brussels sprouts. That's not a temptation in my life. That's not something I'm worried about. You know, I know some of the vegetarians are like, how could you possibly not like, I don't like Brussels sprouts. I don't, I'm sorry, right? I don't need to pray to God to keep me from that temptation. But I need to pray to God to keep me from the temptation of having a hasty tongue. God keep me from the temptation of having harsh words when things are not going my way. And I want something different to happen. Because those are areas that I can be tempted in. I'm very grateful that no one on staff or my family is amening right now. Um, praise God, I must be growing. Right? But, but I want to think about and reflect on how I can be tempted so that I can resist that. Right? Friends, we need to understand sin is the common current. Like riding a tube on a lazy river. If you just go with the flow and are unthoughtful about your life, your life's just going to go in one way, which is away from the holy ways of God. Pursuing holiness is about getting out of the tube and trying to swim upstream against the current. That's always going to take intentionality and thought. In order to do that, we need to reflect on how we're being pulled. And so I really practically, I try to do this daily in the morning. Jesus taught us how to pray, lead us not into temptation. So I try to think through the categories of the Lord's Prayer every morning. And one of the categories I'm trying to think about is how am I going to be tempted today? I'm just trying to think about the ways, looking ahead, that I could be led into sin. And trying to ask and think about ways to then not be led into that sin. So I try to do that. And then also about, about once a month, uh, maybe every couple weeks, I try to pull away on a Saturday morning and just think about big categories in my life. Like overall in my life right now, what are, what are things that God, you're trying to work on me in? Just try to be reflect, reflective of that and try to think about that. Uh, we need reflection in order to resist. We need reflection and then we need starvation. There's an old story that says there are two wolves fighting for rule in your heart. There's a good one and a bad one. The one that wins is the one that you feed. I think it's actually a really biblical idea because James 1 says that we're shaped, we're conformed by the choices that we repeatedly make. And so after reflection, we should think about a plan of starvation. What do I need to stop doing that will help starve out this sin in my life? I have a friend who recently got a flip phone. I didn't even know they made flip phones anymore. Uh, but he got a flip phone because he wanted to starve out the temptation to look at pornography on a smartphone. So he just started it out. Right? It's very easy to make excuses for keeping our sin close. But Proverbs says that you can't hold coals against your chest and expect to not get burned. And so I think the question we should ask ourselves is, are there areas of our lives that we are feeding some table scraps here and there to our sin just enough to keep it alive and around? What do we need to start? We resist by reflection, starvation, and confession. First John 1 says that sin grows in the dark but dies in the light. It's a paraphrase. 
And, and you, can't, you can't hope to resist sin when at the same time you're empowering sin by keeping it hidden. It's not going to happen. We, 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 when we bring sin out into the light, when we confess it, when we make it known, guess what happens? We actually weaken its power. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. I get together with the guys or group every week and I tell them myself. I tell them myself. So here's ways that I've I struggled this week. Here's ways I think I haven't been pleasing God. And it's not this just self-flatulation moment. It's, it's really, they're there to encourage me. They're there to pray for me. They're there to remind me of the forgiveness of Christ, to encourage me in the gospel, to keep me from wallowing in self-pity. But I tell you what, every time I talk about it, I say, you know what happens? That sin gets a little bit less power in my life. Confession is a beautiful thing that should be part of a lot more than just AA meetings. Right? I think they actually got something right when they start by saying, hey, let me just tell you, like, that, that's why people go to those meetings. Guess what? I think that, that idea, that part of, is actually biblical. There's power to be had by talking about the ways that we struggle. I have a friend who says, Jeff, when I'm talking about my temptation, that's not what you should be concerned about me. It's when I'm not talking about it. That's when you need to know that I'm not paying much attention. I'm actually not in a good place. I think it's a great, great way to think about it. And so we need, to, we need to pursue confession. That's how we resist, friends. It's through reflection, starvation, and confession. But finally, we don't pursue holy lives only by resisting being conformed to sin. We don't just think about how we can resist. No, notice how this passage is bracketed in verses 13 and verse 21. There's a word that's repeated in both. Verse 13 says, Set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In verse 21, Through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Friends, how we, how we fight sin is not just by resisting it. It's by, it's by looking at Christ and hoping in him. It's by looking in Christ and hoping in him. You know, it's a common thing to be said that God never gives us more than we can handle. But there's one thing that people remember, well, maybe not one thing, but please, if you've been here for more than like three weeks, I hope you hear me say this again and again. That's total malarkey. Like, God gives us more than we can handle all the time. Expect it. He just doesn't give us more than we can handle without him. Right? When we're being called to live holy lives, let's be really clear, friends. If you're feeling like, man, overwhelmed by that, you should be. I am. We're being given way more than we can handle. We cannot handle living holy lives by ourselves. Are you kidding me? No, that's why this passage doesn't just say, do not be conformed. It says, hope in God. Because we need a power outside of ourselves to do this thing that we can never do by ourselves. We pursue holiness by the actions of reflection, starvation, and confession. Yes, but we also pursue holiness by finding our hope in the Savior who came to rescue us from sin. And so what this passage is calling us to, friends, is to never allow the good news of Jesus to become old news to us. No, we're meant to live in this hope, to live in the hope of Christ, that he lived the perfect life that we failed to live, that he died our death on the cross, that he rose from the grave to prove his divinity and victory over sin and Satan, and that right now he has ascended to the right hand of God, and soon he's coming back to make all things new. Friends, the good news of Jesus is that Christ has died Christ has risen, and Christ is coming again, and he is our hope for holiness. You want to grow in being a holy person? Set your hope in Christ. Look to him. Look to him. 
1859, Harry Colcord did the unthinkable and allowed himself to become the first person to ever be carried across a tightrope stretched across Niagara Falls. 90 mile per hour gusts of wind. 187 foot drop. 2,590 feet across. And Harry Colcord gave himself in total faith to the great trapeze artist Charles Blondin. Harry had to hold on. He did not just let go and let Blondin and lie there like a dead weight. No, no, he held on with all his might. He took action. But his hope for a safe crossing was not in himself, but was in the strength of the one who was carrying it. Friends, God calls us to take action to pursue holy lives. But he is our hope. Our hope that we're going to make it from this life to the next. Our hope that we're going to make it across the great chasm of the roaring falls that can be our sorrows and our temptations, and our hardships, and our calamities, the things that like strong gusts of winds want to block, want to, to knock us off into to deadly peril below. The hope that we're going to make it safely from this life to the next through this dangerous journey is that we have a skilled Savior, and He has never dropped anyone who puts their trust in Him. Hoping in Christ is what's actually going to lead to more holiness in our lives. Because you know when you start hoping in Jesus more, that leads to loving Jesus more. And when you love Jesus more, well, like oil and water, love for Christ and love for sin can't mix. One drives out the other. And so John Owen, who wrote one of the most dense and biggest books on how to actually grow in holiness, he, he has a very simple sentence in it that says this. You don't have to read the 3,000 pages. Just read this one sentence. It says, fill your affections with Christ that there may be no room, more room for sin. Christ Church, this is how we pursue holy lives. We look to Christ. We place our hope in Him. We fill our affections with Him. And as we do, we become more and more changed into the holy people He has called us and created us to be. And so Christ Church, the holy God wants us to pursue as His blood ransomed chosen children, He wants us to pursue living holy lives. May we remember who we are. May we live in that power of who God has called us to be. And when we seek to influence the world around us with His holiness for His glory. Let's bow our heads in prayer.